Hey everyone, it's Mike from You'll Probably Agree. Today I speak with Ian Simmons from KickSeek.com about the 1995 Oliver Stone political epic Nixon, a movie that is vastly overlooked and I think holds very well to the test of time, which Ian actually agreed with me on. Now that's a first. I'm <laughs> just kidding. We agree on a lot. Uh, I want to thank my sponsor, Galway Bay, located at 500 West Diversity Parkway in Chicago, Illinois. The best damn dive bar in the city. They've been supportive of me the whole time. They've let me set up my cameras, my sound equipment, everything. Uh, they're taking all their safety precautions there extremely seriously, and it's a wonderful bar to go to. But in case you are afraid to go to that bar, feel free to go to dualdrinkware.com. The link will be in the description of this podcast or video if you're watching this on YouTube. And from there, you'll be able to buy a lot of their products online. So you can get coasters, t-shirts, uh, glasses, all sorts of amazing stuff. I have a ton of their glasses and a ton of their coasters, and I love them. So thank you, Galway Bay. And without further ado, here's the episode. Sir, Congress is considering four articles of impeachment. The charges are really very serious, sir. One abuse of power. It took me a long time to fall in love with you, Dick. And it doesn't make you happy. You want them to love you. To uh, obstruction of justice. They never will. Hello, everyone, and welcome to You'll Probably Agree. Today, I have Ian Simmons from kickseat.com. Did I get it right or kickingtheseat.com? I think it's kickseat, right? It is kickseat.com. You got it right. All right. Yes, I did get it right. God, sorry, my Nixon came out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't calling you that. This is when I get something wrong. I yell that. Uh, but yes, uh, today we are talking about Oliver Stone's 1995 film, Nixon, which yeah, I guess you haven't seen before, so I'm curious what you thought, because uh, when the movie came out, it was the point of a lot of contention, because that movie made the president look bad. Oh, what times we lived in when Nixon was considered looking bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Hmm. Um, so, Ian, before I dive in, what were your thoughts on Nixon? Well, I mean, it's over three hours long, and unlike... Yeah. Uh, a lot of movies where you can kind of jump to the end if you're watching a screener and say, oh, that's fine. It's 15 minutes of credits on the end of this thing. Uh, I, I only have three hours. No, Oliver Stone uh, had me sit through almost the entire 315. Uh, the first half hour, 40 minutes was pretty rough going, I got to say. Mm. But the balance of it, the, <laughs> the other you know, two and a half hours was, was fantastic. And I think I just need to watch it again at some point. Uh, to fully, once I have a sense of the entire ride, ride I can appreciate the beginning. Um, my issue, and this is just kind of on me uh, as someone who knows a bit about history but is not immersed in it, uh, he plops you right into the middle of Watergate, Watergate in the first like half hour with all the different characters and, and these plots and subplots that if you don't know everything that happened and all the moving parts going in, you're going to be completely lost until probably hour two of this thing. Um, so in that respect, I, uh, you know, again, that's on me, but I think it was an interesting choice to have a mass market movie come out where it's like egg, eggheads only. <laughs> it's like a new class. There's PG 13 R and then eggheads only. Yeah. It's interesting when they made this movie because a lot of people didn't want to, by the film because you know it was too much talking not a lot of explosions and action you know and uh eventually he got someone to buy it because he had a three-picture deal with a certain company and at first they didn't want to do nixon unless you know he could do it for 35 million instead of the original 45 million which to their surprise he agreed to do and uh he actually borrowed the white house set from or leased it, I guess you could say, from Rob Reiner's The American President. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was that's kind of cut half the budget, which surprised me because I thought the set looked pretty good, you know, for the White House in it. Um, but yeah, I this is the movie that got me very interested in 1960s slash 1970s history. I think uh, they might they probably taught it earlier when I was in junior high, but when I was in high school and I stumbled upon it on television, 
And my dad was watching it and he used to have a video store. So we had that movie in the store. I always remembered the little picture of Anthony Hopkins face. And when I was a little kid, I assumed every movie that was R rated was a horror movie. So uh, I'm like, why is this a horror movie about Richard Nixon? In a way it kind <laughs> of is. It's about the horror that he had to live through in life. Uh, and um I remember watching it and it was, this was before I saw G JFK. So it was really the mise on sun that fascinated me how Oliver Stone mixes the different styles between sort of this fake documentary like footage to black and white to current 35 millimeter film and does so seamlessly switching between the two. You know, it's sort of like Oliver Stone while he's in the middle of a Coke trip when he's, uh, when, when he's cutting these films, but it's fascinating to watch. And all, and I knew a I did know about Watergate. I was lost, but I was just so fascinated by the way the movie was made. I wanted to understand it. And even to this day, I don't fully understand everything that's going on, but I understand enough where I get what's going on. And luckily I was visiting my uh, parents at the time when I was rewatching it. So I always, I always have my dad as a guide when I turn to him and I'll be like, well, what are they talking about? And, you know, he'll explain it to me. And um, it was interesting when I was rewatching it with him, he actually said to me, you know, I think this is one of my favorite films. Mm. And he never said that before. And I was like, wow, really? And the thing was, Oliver Stone, uh, 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 not Oliver Stone, uh, uh, Roger Ebert loved this movie. He gave it four stars. He said it was sort of like a Shakespearean tragedy, you know, like uh, Hamlet's or Othello or, you know, uh, or, or a story of a great leader who had so much in his grasp. And unfortunately, he, he couldn't grasp onto his greatness because uh, his own power consumed him. And I thought this was, this is one of the very few movies that shows a sympathetic portrait of Richard Nixon. Cause every other film I see him in, he's played as this two dimensional sort of crooked evil villain. And this one, you actually feel sympathy for him and it doesn't feel forced. It feels genuine. Uh, say what you want about Richard Nixon, but this guy, judging from this movie, really came from nothing. He came from this little Quaker family in Whittier, California, uh, who lived on a lemon ranch. You know, uh, he sold it before they uh, before they found oil. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you know, this guy had to work to where he had to get to where he had to be. Unlike. Uh, JFK, who, for as wonderful as president as he was, you know, he was sort of given everything, and he had a horrible sort of petty comparison to him, where he could not stop thinking about him, or think about why does everyone love you and they hate me, and things like that. And it's just a wonderful piece of filmmaking, and it's something that every time I watch it, I just appreciate it more and more, and you get something more and more from it. And I sort of appreciate the risky, but I think overall successful nonlinear structure of the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's watching it today, I realized that, um, you know, just aesthetically talking, you could make a perfect, and Oliver Stone kind of already did this in the 90s, make a perfect trilogy of, JFK, Natural Born Killers, and Nixon. Yeah. Um, because they both incorporate that, uh, that editing style that you're talking about. They're both very lush and expensive looking uh, movies. And they both talk about uh, sort of contemporary American culture through the lens of the past. Um, well, Natural Born Killers is more of a, a contemporary story and it's a fantasy. Um, but, you know, the, the, I think the point still stands. Uh, yeah, I mean, I. I don't know why I had avoided this movie. I think possibly because I'd gotten a glimpse of the runtime and I was like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> um, yeah. Or I, or I just, you know, I'd seen Anthony Hopkins. I'm like, how the hell is he going to play Richard Nixon? You know, now I'm a, I'm a firm believer. I, it's yeah. amazing that aside from the hair, they didn't have to do, and, and maybe I'm just, maybe I'm getting this totally wrong. I'm fine to be proven wrong, but they didn't put in like fake teeth or, give him jowls or give him a big nose. He just, I think, happens to look a lot like <laughs> Richard Nixon. Hmm. Um, and he accomplished a lot through, uh, you know, just the the demeanor and the performance. Um, if there is, you know, makeup work applied to him, I, I feel like it's very 
uh, subtle and maybe just in terms of aging him up, but they didn't do, uh, you know, what was that Gary Oldman movie where he played Churchill a couple of years ago? Uh, oh. Where he looks like a giant glistening ball sack. They didn't do that. <laughs> um, so, and I, I appreciate that because it gets out of the way of, you know, the making the icon uh, visually and just you're allowed to see him just as a person. Um, yeah, I think it was brilliant. It's, it is a brilliant movie that I just need to watch more to fully appreciate. Uh, but after it was over, I mean, I thought Anthony Hopkins, Joan Allen, who I'm, I've loved for a long time, uh, James Woods, who is, you know, persona non grata in Hollywood, that guy fucking has the chops. I mean, even in this little bit part as he was either Ehrlichman or Haldeman, I get, he might yeah. be Sandler and Waldorf. I get them, can, you know, they're so interchangeable as figures <laughs> in history. Uh, you know, just wonderful performances all around. Yeah, and I mean, the great thing with him, they did put in false teeth, but that was about it. And the great thing is, uh, one thing I like about these kind of portrayals of real life figures is when they don't try to make the actor look unrecognizable from the real figure. Because right. I think when you're trying to make an actor act through makeup, you're sort of doing a disservice to the audience. I, I'm one of the few people who's sort of critical of Jamie Foxx's performance in Ray because I think he's doing an impersonation instead of a heartfelt performance, you know, he's just kind of bobbing his head around going, oh, I'm Ray Charles, yeah, you know, and he's not like letting us see inside of him. And here, this is a portrayal of Richard Nixon where we really get to see inside the man's spirit, inside his heart. We get to see sort of the insecurities, the pain he goes through. I would have liked to have seen a little more of the brilliance, a little more of the good qualities of Nixon because it, it, it sort of doesn't have that. And that was something that I know that uh, Richard Nixon's daughters were highly critical of the film. I know that Disney was somehow partially connected in the green lighting of this picture and they actually, and Disney, apparently, they uh, uh, were personal friends with Richard Nixon. I think Walt Disney was. And uh, they actually sent an apology letter about the film because, you know, at the time, Oliver Stone was a very controversial figure. You know, if he made anything with his name attached to it, one thing I respected, respected about him was that he wasn't afraid to go in daring places. Oh, yeah, he's, and that's still the case today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's not, but I guess people don't notice it as much today because they're just sort of used to it. And he does his research. He's not someone who just goes in daring places and just, you know, makes shit up. You know, he, he really backs it up with a ton of research. I don't know if you've seen his documentary, The Untold History of the United States, but, I mean, Oliver Stone is an incredibly brilliant individual. I mean, the guy went to Yale. He, If you read his screenplays, they're incredibly detailed. Uh, you know, th this guy doesn't go around and just spew bullshit. Now, I mean, you could say what you want about JFK, about how inaccurate it is, which I think <laughs> a lot of it's complete baloney. But having said that, uh, this is a man who doesn't, take half measures when he creates his pictures and even the film itself is telling you you know from the very start you know with the opening uh prologue that reads this film is a dramatic interpolation of effects uh, of events and characters based on public resources and incomplete historical records some scenes and events are presented as composites or have been hypothesized or condensed like the movie's telling you straight up okay like look some of these scenes were condensing the history we're hypothesizing it one scene that's uh, in particular where they're uh, where they're where they're condensing stuff is when you have Howard Hunt talking to John Dean, and you know Hunt's telling Dean that Richard Nixon is the darkness, you know that will He's drag you down with it. The darkness, yeah, that was a great yeah. line. Yeah, 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 and and basically. A lot of people were saying, well, that never happened. And there's this interview on the DVD with Charlie Rose with Oliver Stone, where Charlie Rose is criticizing Oliver Stone to his face about that scene. Oliver Stone said, wow, I condensed it because you have to in a film, which I mean, the movie's already three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much more you could. I and still you had to condense stuff in it.
and he does a great job. This this is a movie where it's three and a half hours, but it feels like it earns his length. It feels like you're watching a tremendous epic, but you're glad you took the journey. Yeah, and I think um, I agree with that now, but I think in that early going where it's so inside baseball, yeah, I was confused that for that first 40 minutes, I thought it was kind of interminable because I'm like, I don't know who these people are. I don't know where I am or why I'm supposed to care or are there shocking revelations yet? I just don't know. So I kind of want to turn this off. But, you know, I stuck with it, of course, because I'm talking to you about it and it all <laughs> pays off. It's just that, you know, Oliver Stone says, you sure you want, you really sure you want to go on this ride? Come, are you sure? Are you positive? And then he lets you on and it's a great roller coaster. Um, yeah, not as you mentioned with, you know, filmic spectacle and everything, but just intense personal drama. And I think it really opens up when we start getting to his backstory and, and Whittier and, and the loss of his family members and his complex relationship with his parents. Um, you know, it's, it's really great uh, stuff. And I think my one complaint, uh, you know, you said that you would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the goodness in Richard Nixon. I think we see, I, I think we saw plenty of that. I think we saw that mm. he was essentially, that there is a missing section of his life, sort of like Jesus, where he's like, you know, <laughs> he's 13 and then he's 33. Like what happened, you know, in that, those middle years. Um, but with Nixon, you see him as a young boy with all this family strife, but he's essentially a good, honest kid, or he's trying to be. Um, even though when he comes clean to his mom about having a corn husk joint, which I didn't know was the thing, you do get the feeling that he's it's sort of his, you know, he wants to be George Washington. Um, but then later on, uh, I think he's a very compromised guy who wants to be loved. He sees love as power and he wants to, you know, get the adoration of people who love JFK, but, you know, can't stand him because he's kind of a stuffed shirt in a lot of respects. The media hates him. Um, it's a real combative thing. I don't see him as being a bad person in there. However, towards the end of the film, when it was, I think it was Haldeman uh, and Ehrlichman talking about uh, all of the stuff that is coming, you know, coming to the surface uh, in those tapes, they start talking about other stuff that hasn't been put on tape potentially. All these other like weird plots that Nixon was involved in, in this like, little bit of like five minute dialogue between the two and they're walking through various rooms. I'm like, mm. none of that seems in character with the person that I've been watching for two hours. So I needed to see a bit more of the darkness in Richard Nixon because he seems like kind of a, uh, hmm, how do I put this? Didn't he, wasn't it alleged that he had somebody poisoned or something like that? We see him plotting against people uh, and sort of getting in bed with shady characters, but there's a level of deviousness in those crimes that are being alleged between those two characters that just didn't quite land for me. And I feel like we needed some more of that early political history uh, with him to find out where the turn happened. It's kind of like Anakin Skywalker was a mixed up kid, uh, but then all it takes is, you know, one line from the emperor. He's like, okay, I'm dark. I'm dark now. I'm going to go start killing children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I get, that was one thing I did actually see a lot of light in him when I saw that picture. You did see that there was heart and he did care for other people, especially with his daughter. You know, you saw how much his daughter loved him and she didn't see that. I think the reason he cut himself off from his family was because he didn't want them to see sort of all the shady, horrible stuff that he did. And what do you think of today's context? He didn't do anything that bad. He just broke into a office and well he did do some stuff that's bad i mean he he you know he bombed cambodia basically for political grandstanding which oh, yeah, he, yeah. He, did, he did plenty of horrible things but i think this might have been another part of the disconnect is stone and i guess the people he wrote the film with are trying to make a case simultaneously that richard nixon was a guy who went about attaining power in some not so great ways but that he was also the victim of what's referred to as the beast. Yes. Yeah. Conglomerate of various world political and business leaders who are pulling stream strings and wrapping him up and trying to promote him. There's like, there's Jack, who's the, the Texas, I guess, oil billionaire, whoever played by Larry Hagman. I thought that was a great kind of visual, unintentional visual gag where it's Dallas 1963. And like one of the first people you see of this car show is Larry Hagman from Dallas. Um, yeah. It's, it's great. But 
I'm like, okay, so is this guy a puppet or is he a perpetrator or is he both? And where is this? I almost wish we could have cut out like two or three scenes of him arguing with Joan Allen and, and getting some more context into what he was actually like as a political operative. Yeah, uh, especially like with, with the uh, Texas guys, like some of it was almost cartoonish with how uh, like evil they were. Like he's talking to Larry Hagman at one point and I think like one of the guys says like, it's like a couple of fairies dancing around. They cut to like this guy with a cigar in his mouth and he just goes, ha, in a white shirt and suspenders. Like, yeah, that's uh, he's, he's like out of clan central casting. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but it, it was based on the, the inspiration for the screenplay. It was based on this thing called the beast actually. Hmm. And it was sort of about, Richard Nixon's darkness, but also about a system that can't be controlled. You know, there was that scene where this is hypothesized. We don't know if this happened in real life when Richard Nixon visits the Lincoln Memorial for some reason when there's a ton of protesters out there with no security. And no, I've, I've heard that story too. I um, I don't know if it's urban legend or not, but I, someone was talking about that very recently. And um, the sense i got was that it wasn't like a gaggle of protesters like there weren't you know 30 of them he was just he you know wandered across a couple of people and was talking to them uh that would make more sense and i'm guessing he had security with him they were like rushing the last minute like oh shit where is he you know they just drove up because <laughs> that was weird you just hear him marching along and it's like he's surrounded by 30 protesters wouldn't they be worried he'd get killed or something but anyways it, uh, with that said there was that great line from the one uh woman protester who figured out the system that took him 30 some years to to to, to discover where she said, well, what's the point of the president? What's the, the point of being president? You're powerless. He goes, no, I'm not powerless. I can control the system. I can, you know, at least tame it a little bit. Sounds like you're controlling a wild animal. Well, maybe I am. You know, and, <laughs> and, you, and she, she got it. He goes, you know, 20-year-old kid. She figured out something that took me 30 years to discover. It was like controlling a wild beast. And you get it right away. Like, ah. You know, yeah. th 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 that's the whole point of the movie is, yes, he had darkness, but anyone who has a side of of negativity to them, they will be consumed by this system. Or if you're like Donald Trump, who's already a bastard, it's just going to make you worse with Mitch McConnell pulling the strings for you. Well, I mean, I want to ask you about that, because I knew before we had this conversation that we were going to be talking about Trump and yeah. uh Honestly, it's it's eerie some of the the parallels in this film, uh, you know, in the the series uh, that I do on my podcast that you've um, you know participated in, uh, Real Politic. One of the things I like to do is look at these older films that talk about political issues and, and political events of history, and how they mirror what's going on in contemporary life and the the areas in which they kind of happened. Uh, it's this weird sort of repeating pattern. And in Nixon, it's very scary how close we are to being, you know, as a country, in pretty much the same uh, political straits as we were back in uh, back in the early '70s, um, complete with a, a despised president who was at war with the press and all that stuff. But my question about Trump, for you, is, you know, one of the you mentioned at the outset of this, one of the things people were upset about when this movie came out uh, was the depiction of Richard Nixon, sort of humanizing him because he had been a cartoon character in popular culture and politics in the intervening decades since he you know, shamefully resigned from office. This movie got into his personal life and revealed him as a character uh, who was a, a human being who had a past and who had a life that was not at all simple or the cartoon a lot of people portrayed him as, which I think if you had pitched that to someone in 1974, they would have been like, no, fuck that guy. He's a, he's a monster. He's an idiot. He's an asshole. He's, you know, screwing the country. But now we look back on it 25 years later on Oliver Stone's film, and we can see, oh, this was a complex man with, you know, who is potentially not like the way he is portrayed in the press. So when you say that about Donald Trump, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing, do you feel like 25 years from now, we could look back on his presidency and perhaps a movie, if Stone's still kicking around or his son or something, 
uh, is it possible to see something that humanizes him to you the same way that Nixon humanized that president to a generation of people who thought he was a one note monster? Yes. And here's why I wrote this article about what would uh, Mr. Rogers say about Donald Trump, which his wife actually pretty much said he was a monster, which, wow. Well, that, that doesn't yeah. mean anything. Yeah. Uh, but, but, so. the, but yes, you can humanize him because he, he didn't, nobody is, nobody grows up a monster. Nobody's born that way. Uh, to my personal belief, when he grew up, his father taught him to hate everyone. Uh, when his father was creating the or, or was building up the Trump Hotel, he said to him, don't let any N word in this hotel. And there, there's an account on that on the news where he's talking to someone like that. So I think his father formed him in this way and he was born in this sort of cradled, closed off world. If I were to hypothesize, Trump reminds me very distinctly of a high school bully I had. Um, where at first I, I absolutely hated and relinquished this kid. And then my sister became friends with uh, his sister. It turned out that his family had some very deep personal problems. His sister worked in a KFC and she was hooked on drugs. And his father, who he would always just praise and tell how great he was. Turns out he pulled a gun on his family and he was just a, just a horrible human being. But this kid would always brag about how rich he was and stuff like that, which turns out he wasn't really that rich. Hmm. So I think you're formed by the way you are raised. And I think the way Donald Trump was raised was in a way that, that, that transformed him into the monster that he is. Once, well, but, but even that, I mean, you're calling him a monster. I mean, you don't, you ultimately don't know him and you you don't know the forces that shaped him as he was growing up because you've you know maybe read news accounts or heard news stories and things like that i mean we're probably not going to know the truth of the complexity of the man until he's at least out of office and probably dead yeah uh currently i i just can't disconnect from it to be honest just like how they couldn't in the 1970s because richard nixon for all the things he did he killed civilians in other countries. He didn't mm -hmm. kill his own people because he essentially wanted to win a re-election. But he did bomb another country, I guess, in order to win a re-election, which well, pushed he, it as again, well. Going back to framing, let's let's talk about a scene in the movie. Uh, yeah. Early on, he's uh, I think it was Madeline Kahn was talking about how her character uh, at a party with Nixon was regaling her friends, her high society friends about how there was a newspaper article or magazine photo that had run with a crowd of people all looking one direction and Richard Nixon looking, you know, in the complete opposite direction. He was the only one. And it made him look like, it made it look like everyone had turned away from a fart that he had <laughs> like a, a flattering image. And Nixon comes up and he said, oh yeah, I, I remember that, that moment. Uh, I was looking across the street at a stoplight uh, and, you know, I was waiting for it to change and everyone else was going about their business, but the press didn't bother to print that now, did they? So that's my kind of question. Again, the parallel we're looking at is a president who is combative with the press, a press that is allied against him for reasons, right, wrong, indifferent, you know, maybe it just sells more papers or whatever. Um, but, and then you look at, at Donald Trump. Uh, I just think it's, it's tough to say you know, when you say, you know, he killed Americans, Americans have died on his watch due to this pandemic. And I think that's what we're both talking about. But to lay the blame for all of that at his feet uh, is kind of, you know, I think it's irresponsible, frankly. Well, I would say that it's not entirely irresponsible because he was warned about this back in. Yeah, well, no, but. I, I and he even said it on tape to Woodward that he didn't want people to panic. But if he right, was to be but, responsible, but no, you know, saying that he didn't want people to panic is different than trying to cover something up. I and mean, we can trace back the actions that he was, which taking. he essentially did cover up and he continues to cover up. 
Well, no, I mean, he's, he's been upfront about it. He said before the Woodward revelation came out, there was a news conference months ago where that came out and it was a story for about two days and people were like, oh my God, he didn't want us to panic. What does that even mean? And then a few months later, the Woodward book came out and there was that revelation so-called again, and it was a news story for about two days and then people went back to forgetting about it. So my question is, well, I mean, we could get into an entire discussion about what he could have done with the pandemic, but I mean, he's not a dictator. As much as people want to paint him as one, as we've seen with the reactions to the things he's proposed, not in terms of lockdown, but also, you know, riots and civil unrest, when he goes to people in different states and says, I can send in reinforcements, I can send in troops, follow these guidelines. You've had people from Minneapolis to Seattle to Chicago saying, fuck you, this is our jurisdiction. You have no power over this. We're going to do what we want. So when you say that everybody who died because of this pandemic can be laid at the feet of the president, I just, in a country that is made up of 50 individual states with their own jurisdictions, I don't know how you can make that claim. Well, look at what happened with Obama. We had swine flu come out, right? We had a CDC office that basically kept it from uh, unleashing here. Trump shut it down just because it was under Obama's no, no, name. Trump, Trump did not. That's that's another misca mischaracterization. He didn't shut it down. He condensed the offices within the organization. It was a restructuring thing. I think two people got transferred to different apart departments, but he didn't shut it down. I mean, I read that story too, and I was like, wow, that's really shitty. So I dug into him like, it's being reported inaccurately, which I think gets back to a lot of this media problem that we have going back to the fine people Charlottesville hoax, where it's reported and people see clips on TV. So they think that the president said the people on both sides of this issue are fine people, meaning he's endorsing neo-Nazis and white supremacists. But if you watch the entire clip, which it's only five minutes long, uh, within, I think, a minute of him saying that fine people thing, he says, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about white supremacists and racists, they should be condemned completely. But you never see that clip, you see the first part of it. And that's it, or you read the first part of it. And then it's three paragraphs about how he's an awful person. I think he was backtracking on something he actually meant to say. And well, but again, that's that's your projection. And I watched the entire press conference. And also, if you also with the debates, I watched the entire debate, the stand back and stand by thing. He said that. And yeah, yeah, he kept on saying stuff. But, you know, he, he's constantly doing and saying these horrible things, which seems to equate to how he really feels. Now, I don't think he was born this way, but I think that's the way he he really views human life. You know, it's all through the projection and the lens of him. Uh I mean, George Bush, I don't think was a monster, but I think Dick Cheney was. So, you know, no, you we, can say that. I think we're closer to agreeing on that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think history will view Donald Trump just like how it viewed Dick Cheney. I don't think that uh, I, I, I just can't see something sympathetic there because Richard Nixon did do some good things. He he made peace with China. Right. That's and one great. Trump's been working on initiatives, uh, drawing down wars and you know, working to bring countries together as well. I mean, well, by by being in bed with Russia without. Well, that's again, that's a, what I don't know what you base that on. Honestly. Well, look at well, look at what has happened with social media. He got impeached over this. Impeached, but not convicted. There was nothing there. Well, yeah, because the Senate stormed by the Republican Party. But okay, you see, the thing is, we can go around and around and around about all this stuff. But I mean, a lot of this is just conjecture and projecting an image, you know, that's attached to the president. I'm not saying you, but a lot of people have attached to Donald Trump. And everything can be seen through that lens. And you can make any story that you want to make him look like a guilty, horrible person. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying that as someone who considered themselves a proud liberal for a long time, the election of Donald Trump kind of broke me because I was like, okay, this happened. What have we got? What is this resistance left going to provide for us? And it's really provided nothing in four years. I think that's why we're in such a precarious uh, position now as we come up to an election in two weeks. Well, everything has been been torn apart and, and I'm, I'm terrified he's going to steal this thing. I'm, I'm terrified that he, I mean, there, uh, just look at what he's done with the post office. Look at how much other states are trying to stop him. Look at how much other states aren't trying to stop him. I, 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 I am absolutely mortified as to what's going to happen.
well, something's going to happen and we'll be here to talk about it, I'm sure, <laughs> and, and deal with it and, and come up with a plan. Either Biden's going to win or Trump's going to win or, you know, Nancy Pelosi will take the <laughs> assume office at the end of January if no one can decide. Um, there's all sorts of fun things on the horizon. 2021 could make 2020 look like a cakewalk. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's which, I <sighs> Which, again, comes to, you know, going back to Nixon. Uh, I can't, who was it? Uh, they were having a meeting and they were talking about Nixon resigning. Maybe it was Nixon and the guy played by Powers Booth that was like, you know. Yeah, what's, Alexander Haig. Okay, that was him. Uh, kept calling him Al. That was why the, the disconnect. Ow. I was like, mm -hmm. hey, Al, uh, what, what comes next? Like, what's after this? It's like the biggest story of all time. Yeah. What's going to happen in the aftermath? Well, I would see. I mean, after him, it seemed things got better. But I don't, I mean, he was pardoned. But I don't know if he should have been. Well, yeah, I mean, he just did a break in at Democratic headquarters. It's funny. When you are the president, you are above the law. And for anyone else who did the things they I think of all the people who committed the same sort of crimes he has, who have been in jail for years. I think in the end, one of my friends said it a long time ago, everyone's going to go to jail but Donald Trump. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if behind the scenes there's a secret deal where the FBI, the CIA said to Trump, look, as long as you peacefully leave office, we won't do anything. Just go. You know, the next president will pardon you. Um, but yeah, with Nixon, it seemed like the, the country was on, on a tailspin over this stupid burglary, which in some ways I agreed with Richard Nixon on. Like they're making a big deal out of sort of nothing. But at the same time, I understand it at the time because you still you still committed burglary while other people go to jail for it you're president so you don't have to well i think it's not just a burglary it's what the burglary represents right exactly I mean, they're, trying get, yeah. they're trying to essentially tamper with a presidential election which i mean if you don't have a problem with that burglary then you know why is everyone so upset with uh with the 2016 election and and so-called you know russian facebook memes or whatever mm -hmm. Boils, you could just peg it as the same thing. We have to hold the people in elected office to a higher standard than we would hold, you know, Joe Blow down the street if he got busted for stealing a candy bar. Yeah, you know, it's worse. <laughs> if I found out Barack Obama stole a candy bar, I'd be, you know, I'd be pissed. I'm like, you don't need to do that. What's going on here? Oh you're God, one of the good guys. Imagine if Obama did any of the stuff that Nixon or Trump did. I mean, they wanted it. No, he's done. I mean, Obama has tons of you know, gallons of blood on his hands. I'm not I'm not equating him for anything. Um, but, you know, that's something that you could say about all presidents. I mean, you look at uh, Bill Clinton. I mean, the only person I can think of who is, you know, the closest to squeaky clean in the last hundred years is probably Jimmy Carter. But, you know, eh, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> yeah, he still builds houses. He's a great guy. No, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about in terms. Yeah, of I know. I was making a joke. Right. Yeah, he's. He's not sexy enough to <laughs> to blow people up or commit war crimes. Yeah, uh, Richard Nixon also, he was one of the first presidents, not the first president before Carter to look into clean energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that a lot of people don't think about, but that was something that he did. I think whenever you become president, you kind of have to get your hands dirty you had to do some wrong things in order to make a right unfortunately a lot of those wrongs can lead to more wrongs uh the the the, the shocking thing with this president is that he'll openly admit to crimes he commits and even boasts about it which is, is just in i think that's why it's so shocking with this person because we've never had someone who's never been in politics who essentially just says what other people are thinking, but also has a third grade level of reading where his articulation is extremely limited. Uh, I'm so nostalgic for, <laughs> Again, for anything. That, that is an opinion. Um, I, I vehemently disagree. Um, Again, I'm not a Trump booster, but I, one of my problems with the last four years is that it's very easy to characterize the president as you've just done, and it does nothing to advance a cause. I mean, if Trump yeah. is as 
terrible a monster and a dictator and an idiot as you propose, then why is the election so close? Um, you know, and you, let's leave aside Russian interference or all that other stuff that's kind of these boogeymen. I mean, you look outside and you talk to people, it's like I can run across five Republicans and five Democrats and, you know, five undecideds. Uh, if this is, you know, the 30s, <laughs> we're talking about, you know, Adolf Hitler, yeah, let's go smash him into bits. Uh, there's like maybe 10 people in the country who are like, no, let's leave him alone. You know, there were people at that time, uh, there were people in my father's family who didn't mind Hitler, who were anti-Semitic. Right, and what boy, I'm about, what I'm talking about, and they may be the 10 people that I'm referring to. No, that's what I mean. I agreeing with you. Consensus, right? I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying throughout history, there's always people who will always be on another side, no matter how monstrous it may seem, right? And with Trump, is it close? We don't know. You know, we don't we don't know until the end results, and even then, we won't know. Yeah. Uh, I think too hype. If I were just to hypothesize with 2016, I think there was a lot of complacency, uh, partially on my end. I voted for Hillary, and that was about it. Uh, every other presidential election, aside from ones where I figured it would be a landslide, and it was like when it came to Mitt Romney and, and, and Obama, mm -hmm. I campaigned. Uh, when I campaigned for Joe Biden in this election, I work with a group called People's Action. We do this thing called deep canvassing where we don't judge voters. We don't talk about issues as much as we ask them how they're doing. And we reach to them on a human level, as much as I like to call them dumb racist hicks, I don't. And when you reach them on that level, you're actually able to sort of turn them over. Um, so to that extent, are all Trump supporters by that measure horrible racist people? Probably not. Um, I just think that there, there, there's a certain level of disconnect when it comes to access to the media, whether you're consumed by Fox News, because they still own most of the airwaves. And we could say it's a liberal media, but I think it's it's more in the middle, you know, depending on where you are. Um, and there's misinformation being spread everywhere. That's why essentially I kind of go to BBC now for my news access, because they're not part of the United States and they just give you the straight story and they don't tell you their opinions. I cannot stand opinion pieces. <laughs> like, to be honest, I, it's like, I don't want to hear someone's opinion. I want to read what the story is and formulate my own. Um, with, with that yeah, said, it reminds, it reminds me of a uh, David Crossbit from 2004, I think when he was talking about the Bush administration, <laughs> cause he was talking about uh, reading, um, yeah, it was the BBC or it was one of the big papers over there. Um, damn it, it was on the tip of my tongue. But anyway, he's like, how fucked up is it that I have to go to other people's country newspapers to read about what's going on in my country? Yes, exactly. I had to go to other people because it's like you go to the you go here and I'll be reading a New York Times article. and It'll be like Donald Trump. He's a bad. I'm like, OK, I know that. But just give me the story. Like what happened? Like because there's just chunks of fat of just someone's opinion in each story. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just drives me up the fucking walls. But that's why I, I it, that's why I go to other countries for it. And honestly, just with this country, it, it's just filled with idiots. There's my demographic. All right. But yeah, but the Nixon, I, I do like it because it, it does have a human portrayal of Richard Nixon. Uh, Oliver Stone did try to do the same thing with W, which I think was a pretty good film, but it felt rushed. Although, to my surprise, Nixon, to a certain extent, was rushed. It was greenlit in 93. It was filmed in 94 and came out in 95. And uh, Nixon died in 94. Yeah. So, you know. Was I, it what, Oliver Stone doing the, the voiceover at the very end? Yeah. It was? Okay. Because mm -hmm. it sounded like him. But I was like, that's... Because it was an interesting choice because I usually see, you know, title, the, the fade to black and then the title cards. Yeah. But no, he, he narrated them. I thought that was a really sweet kind of a touch. Yeah. I like that. I don't like the title card at the end of movies. It's just cheap. I mean, even JFK, I think did that uh, yeah. at the very end. Uh, and 
Also, it was uh, Oliver Stone's voice when he's interviewing Richard Nixon's mother uh, when she's in the retirement home. Yeah. Mary Steenburgen, who I thought was was really good in this movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, she really sold that 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 Quaker sort of small town woman sort of uh, role quite well. But yeah, I did. I did absolutely love um, Anthony Hopkins sort of portrayal of Richard Nixon. I think Oliver Stone's quite brilliant at casting in some of these movies. Uh, maybe not with Alexander. Um, that movie was a mess. I've, I've yeah. not seen Alexander. That was, was that the one with um, Colin, Colin Farrell? Farrell? Yeah. Okay, because I know it was around that same time that there was Troy with Brad Pitt, like all these weird mega million dollar sword and sandals epics for some reason that seemed to be cashing on history plus Lord of the Rings that I just kind of tuned out of. Yeah, it was mostly Lord of the Rings that cashed out of, <laughs> and all of them try to ca- you know try to capture its magic. You know they couldn't. Yeah, uh, I think Alexander could have been an amazing film. It's just that hey, that one don't cast American actors in these roles. I would rather have people speak in <laughs> Roman and uh, do what they did with Passion of the Christ. I didn't think it's necessarily a good film, but I did like how it was in Aramaic. Um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, I think with Nixon, I don't know what else there is to cover other than. Uh, it's a film that I think was overlooked at the time because Oliver Stone was such a polarizing figure. I think today most people don't know who he is, you know, because everyone's so consumed with all this this Marvel stuff. And, <laughs> and to be I honest, to see, I would love to see a, a Oliver Stone. Well, I guess kind of Captain America: Winter Soldier was the closest that we would get to this. Kind of yeah, conspiracy theory movie in the superhero world, but that would be crazy to see an oliver stone marble film it would be filled with obscenities and violence and drugs <laughs> no what he he did he did uh world trade center which felt like a hallmark movie to me um but <laughs> i didn't see that one either i saw it my my history with oliver stone is very spotty um geez did you see savages yeah is there um, yeah, I was like, I, I can't believe this is the same guy who did all these other movies that I love. Here, here's the thing with Oliver Stone. I think Oliver Stone kind of has a very limited range in terms of, like, he's a brilliant man. But it seems like all his great movies are movies that cover the 1960s and 70s because he has a very personal stake in it. He served a term in Vietnam. So I think all, all the history around that is very personal to him. So he's able to make these incredible films based on it, whether it be Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, Nixon. But then like a lot of his other stuff, it's just, I'd have to see Natural Born Killers again, but I thought that one was just more of a celebration of excess than anything. And the the only other movie he made that I like, which is just otherwise kind of an average film, was Talk Radio. And oh, yeah. the re- the rest of it is just kind of forgettable. And when, when it comes to a lot of his filmography, especially today, like what he did that Snowden movie. I didn't okay. see it, but yeah, yeah, I, I saw the documentary and I'm like, well, I don't need to see the movie, <laughs> which the reverse habit, which born on the 4th of July. I have a friend who's friends with this uh, documentary filmmaker where she made this doc on Ron Kovic. And right at the time she was going to release it, born on 4th of July came out. Oh, yeah yeah so did did it come out i don't think so oh man that sucks yeah um, but yeah I, I remember i don't remember the name of that snowden doc but it was the one with uh with glenn greenwald like talking to him and stuff right was it that was like mm-hmm. hours long um no yeah, like think, hour and a half or something like that there was another one that was there was it was a longer movie i'll have to look it up but um no, it was like I watched that and then I saw that Snowden was a thing. I was like, I, I think I've already seen the better version of this. Yeah, Citizen Four is what it's called. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that, they literally followed him inside the hotel room. And then now that's a dirty that Obama did. He, he, he did uh, expand the, the, the Patriot Act where basically you could monitor every citizen and their every movement. People go, well, I don't want contact tracing when it comes to this pandemic. It's like, well, they're already doing contact tracing. How do you think Google knows where the fuck you are when you use Google Maps? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, 
yeah, that's a that's a whole other show. But uh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that was one of my my biggest heartbreaks was uh, was Obama because uh, I voted for him once, and I was like, you know, it's, uh, I'm kind of done. But mm. uh, yeah, I miss decency, even if it was false decency. <laughs> I see. That's 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 the thing is I, <laughs> I I false decency to me is not decency. <laughs> it is the yeah. exact opposite of decency. It's kind of even worse. But then it, it, the problem is it just fuels all the crazies to just say and do whatever the hell they want. And that that's what really is just, oh, uh, God, it's horrifying. You know, especially with, with the way some people, I mean, we wouldn't have people walking around with tiki torches saying Jews will not replace us then. And perhaps some of it is the media's fault, condensing what Trump says. But at the same time, he does still say those things, you know, well, even no, if he walks I mean, it back. But, but right. But here's the thing. I mean, you keep saying that, but and especially after the debate came out, people were compiling minutes worth of footage, like uh, one of my montages. And when I say minutes, I'm not talking about like, well, he gave a speech that was five minutes long and that counts. No, like just minutes worth of speeches of him talking about white supremacy and condemning it. So you can say that, yeah, but he doesn't really mean it, or he's backpedaling, or he's dog whistling. That's fine, but that's also an interpretation. You can't come out and say, well, he's never condemned white supremacy. Now, if you choose to believe that he's sincere or not, that's kind of on you. But if I'm just looking at it and saying, well, he won't shut up about how he condemns white nationalism, I kind of got to take him at face value. I mean, like you're saying, you can't control the crazies. And Donald Trump certainly doesn't do anything to help the national discourse with the way he conveys whatever message he thinks he's conveying but you know at the end of the day it's like you've got you know the truth whatever that is but it's all based on perception so you're going to see it one way someone else is going to see it another way but if you're saying yeah i think he's a secret white supremacist i'm like i don't see the evidence of it i don't think he is a white supremacist i just think he says stupid things that that fuel them you know and then when he tries to walk well, back yeah, what so he says, he's already Alexandria said the thing. Or, so does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, that's the thing. I'll say, I'll say this. Her one-minute endorsement for Joe Biden was the worst fucking endorsement I've ever said, ever seen. Because she said, I endorse Bernie Sanders. And then she goes on Twitter, of all things, and said, no, they, they made it sound like I endorse Bernie Sanders. Like, because that's literally what came out of your fucking mouth. <laughs> And that's, again, that's, there was some kind of, that was like a matter of decorum or something, because I think she had pledged to represent him or something. So she had to come out and say that uh, as a matter of procedure, even though she was really endorsing Biden, she, because of the rule, she had to say she was for Sanders. And it would have been great if she had actually started off by saying, you know, officially because of rule, you know, 692, I have to say I'm endorsing Bernie Sanders or I'm pledging for Bernie Sanders, but I'm endorsing Joe Biden. Yeah. You know, but that's, I don't know if she just didn't think it would be a thing or what, but it did look like a massive gaffe. And you're right. She didn't help her case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, again, it's too much information that we have now. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it was better when we just had a piece of newspaper, we read it, and that was it. You know, now you go on the internet and everyone can pull up whatever crap they want, whether someone cuts up a video or does whatever. You'd hate the fucking movie I cut up called The Snake. Don't watch it. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, that's basically me cutting up stuff Trump said. Um, but uh, again, I did. That just read the story, go on BBC, screw what the dumb Americans say, <laughs> and then go about your day. I read the headline from BBC, and then I go out and call voters, and then from there, it's, it's beyond my control. You know? Well, I mean, it's cool that you're doing, as they say nowadays, the kids say, you're doing the work. Um, you know, you're actually out there canvassing and, and listening to people. Now, without giving anything away, uh, when you talk to people and perhaps, you know, I guess you're, are you cold calling, uh, you know, numbers of like likely or registered voters? Cause uh, you say that you you're tempted to call them, you know, dumb redneck hicks or whatever, but uh, <laughs> are these people that have been contacted before? They're just cold calls. They're cold calls. Uh, okay. we, we, we get numbers from certain States. So we'll call North Carolina we'll call Wisconsin. We'll call Pennsylvania. We'll call Arizona, all the battleground States. 
And uh, some of them are very nice people. I mean, I remember one day I called North Carolina and I got the deepest of the deep Southern districts. You know, like these were people who were like, what do you want? Huh? You know, some people saying, I want to vote. I don't like the things that Joe, uh, that Donald Trump is saying, but if I vote for Joe Biden, I'm going to get socialism and I don't want that. It's just, oh God. But then on another day, I'll call North Carolina and there'll be plenty of perfectly intelligent college educated voters who I'll talk to who, um, you know, one day I had like all Trump supporters and they had all Biden supporters. Uh, but yes, if I could freeze time and never have the election day come, I would. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess like what I was getting at with that is when you're having conversations and I don't know how long these conversations last. I mean, you're, you're supposed to be getting, was it deep canvassing? You're actually yes. engaging and talking with them. Are these like five minute conversations? Are you on the phone for an hour? Like, how well do you get to know these people, assuming you get past the hanging up stage? Yes. Well, beyond the hanging up stage, it depends. I mean, at most, maybe five minutes or something like that, you know. But, yeah, it'll be a few minutes. And, I mean, I had a wonderful conversation with one woman who told me a very personal story. And at the end of the conversation, she said, you know, I thought this was another political call. I'm glad you called me. You really reached out to me. I haven't made a decision yet, but this call meant a lot to me. And thank you. That's great, man. Yeah. So it's like, I actually kind of like helped reach someone and change of mind. And it's like, yeah, I did something. And Meanwhile, everyone else on Facebook's like, I'm pissed. I'm going to do something. I'm like, okay, do canvassing. Uh, I'm too busy. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I don't want yeah. to risk talking to a Trump supporter. Are you crazy? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but it, it, it brings to mind, wouldn't it be nice if, I don't know how the hell you do this, but after the election, if you could somehow have a service that would just cold, kind of cold call people and just reach out to them to see how they're doing or you know, yeah. not like what, what you're doing you know you call with a, an intention to you know on behalf of a political you know movement or whatever the deep canvassing thing but you got to talk to someone who really it sounds like she was relieved that someone cared about her opinion and just let her talk about stuff i mean yeah. that seems like something that could be that could bring people together even more than an election which particularly this one is gonna be very divisive yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. I, and people need help, you know, because therapy is very expensive. And <laughs> a lot of people don't have access to something like that. And when they don't, you know, they, they snap and they wind up grabbing a tiki torch or maybe that's not who they really are. But you see, to understand people on a human level is, uh, you know, is difficult to do. And that's the power of film. And yes. to bring this back to Nixon, that's the power of what Oliver Stone did, where you took someone where you would otherwise hate and they actually make you feel sorry for him, which it's unfortunate that his family hated this movie so much. They hated the fact that it showed him drinking, although he was documented to drink so much. And because he took the pills for his libitis, it, it, it you know, caused him to slur a lot, but he wasn't you know, like shit faced by any means. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you make a film, you do find, this is what I always, and Oliver Stone said it himself, and I wasn't paraphrasing him when I was saying this a few podcasts ago, but you find a greater truth through fiction where you can, can empathize with another individual. And with Nixon here, you could find maybe a greater truth through these hypothesized or condensed events where, where you, you, you can empathize with Richard Nixon in a certain way where maybe if we were put in a certain position where uh, I think it was Ellsberg who was leaking all this information in the New York Times. The Pentagon uh, Papers, yeah. Yeah, the, the Pentagon Papers to New York Times. Yeah, uh, I, I, maybe I would have wanted to grab a bunch of information on him as well and say, well, look at all the, the therapists that he says and look at how he's cheating on his wife and how he's all fucked up. You know, who knows what I would have done in that position. And that's why I couldn't yeah, be president, because I, I, I mean, I, I, I would probably do some shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're also, uh, you're also a very decent human being. Um, but uh, I would say Aww. that that's one of the things that I thought was kind of missing. But just for myself as a Hunter Thompson fan, he spent so much time writing about Nixon. It's one of the things that sort of made his uh, career. Um, you know, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72 is a fantastic book. Uh, 
I forgot to look up because I finished watching this like a half hour before we spoke, but I was thinking, I wonder what Hunter Thompson thought about this movie because he was alive when this thing came out. Um, a, a film that humanized Richard Nixon. Um, I think he actually wrote an obituary from him, but he did not like Nixon really at all, which is strange because there's a great anecdote from one of his other books, or it might've been Campaign Trail, where they actually shared a car ride together and talked football. It was almost like a parallel to that Lincoln Memorial scene where he's, it, it's funny, he's talking to the one guy about uh, you know, his, his uh, football team. Uh, what was it? Oh, the Syracuse Orange Men, <laughs> which <laughs> was quite, quite fun and another great parallel to 2020. Uh, but yeah, Nixon could relate to people on a human level. It's just that when it got to the, the realm of politics, even the people who thought, oh, I could talk to him about football, they're like, yeah, but he's bombing people in Cambodia. Yes. Oh, God, yeah. Probably when he when he saw the movie, if he ever did see it, he was thinking, <laughs> You're right. He was, probably, he was probably so far gone, he can't have even, it can't be said that he even probably really saw the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With all the cutaways and stuff, especially like on fucking shrooms or acid. Oh, my God. <laughs> you should underscore this with allegedly. No. Allegedly, um, yes. Uh, but uh, who knows? Uh, I mean, the, the most exposure I've had to Hunter S. Thompson was a documentary about him and, of course, the fear and loathing in Las Vegas, which, I mean, again, we don't know. I, uh, but I think most people know him for that more than his, his work, you know? <laughs> well, that's the thing. If you ever get a chance to, to actually read his stuff, um, mm. he's, he's one of my favorite authors. I mean, I, I named my son after him for Christ's sake. Whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, his, his political writing is wonderful and he does pretty much what Oliver Stone does and endorses is he writes what's called gonzo journalism, yeah. which is journalism, but told through this sort of fantastical lens. So that the story that he's setting up says more about the truth of the actual situation he's covering than if it had just been, you know, straight news. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's really solid stuff. I would recommend a book called Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. Mm. Uh, which it, it's Thompson covering the entire campaign from start to finish and all the crazy shit that happens in there involving him and not. <laughs> ah, which is what the movie was based on. But of course it became more about his his tripping than anything well, no that was that was fear and loathing in las vegas they are two uh, different two different books oh um, that's a book i thought that was like a movie based on the book yeah oh no fear, they never made a campaign trail 72 movie but uh yeah mm -hmm. and fear and loathing in las vegas and campaign trail 72 i think came out within a couple of years of each other i could be wrong but uh, yeah, both, were, both were worth checking out both good books yeah excellent well having said that i think I, i've said everything i could about nixon uh i think it's a movie that if we look back at it now it's a movie worth checking out definitely uh, yeah and hopefully if we ever do have theaters again oh that's an episode we gotta do because the future of movie theaters is dark it's the darkness reaching out for the darkness <laughs> Yeah, just I, real quick, I saw, I just read the headline, but I saw something the other day about Disney is now like refocusing everything on streaming. Like, yep. not, they don't even have theatrical projections anymore, like or plans. That's crazy. Yeah, we're fucked. Uh, <laughs> uh. Yep. Yeah, on that hopeful note, thanks for coming on. Uh, remember to check out kickseat.com for all of Ian's. Yeah. yeah, and for all Ian Simmons' uh, material, his podcast, his YouTube channel, which is growing stronger and stronger every day, like a race of atomic supermen ready to <laughs> conquer the world. I love it. You bring it back full circle. This is beautiful. <laughs> That's what I do. That's what a filmmaker does. Yeah. I prefer Nolan the shit out of that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I'm glad you turned him into a verb. That's awesome. But uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. And I never would have, I probably never would have watched Nixon if you hadn't said, hey, let's watch it and talk about it. So thank you very much for exposing me to you know, a great movie. Yeah, it's a movie that a lot of people don't know about. And then they see it and they're like, oh, this is really good. And I'm like, yeah. You see, like, I just go beyond 1995 and see it. And you're like, oh, Jesus. Like, you see it from a bit. I want to see what the movies on Trump are like. Not, not the Comey rule. That movie I call the corny rule, you know. <laughs>
Yeah, that's unfortunate. That, I like Brendan Gleeson, but I, I think it was you who said not so not so great things. Uh, he's good in the role, but it felt like it was Marlon Brando playing Batman when he was playing uh, Donald Trump. Mm. He's just like the media hates me. He's like doing the sniffing, and it's like what the. It's weird, and the way they shoot him, like in silhouette, and, and the, these Dutch angles, like we get it with the way he is now. That's a movie that has very heavy political leanings. That I don't get. They're not going to reach anyone beyond the choir that they're preaching to, which even the choirs, like this is ridiculous. And I <laughs> still don't feel bad for James Comey. So. <laughs> Point taken. Yeah. <laughs> All right, sir. Well. All right. Uh, yeah. Thanks again, man. Yep. Thanks. You have a good one. All right, All right, and guys, remember to check out You'll Probably Agree, uh, YPAreviews.com. The YPA stands for You'll Probably Agree. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. When they look at you, you see what they want to be. They look at me, see what they are.